This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here is where it all starts. From the little ones learning, to the high-performance athletes leading. Here we go to play, to practice, to progress. Here is where communities in the nation come together, to compete, to win, and to belong. Here we go to the next level, then on to the world stage. This is Sport Ireland Campus, and here we go. Visit sportirelandcampus.ie to be a part of it. Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Kagan. In tonight's show, well, it's Halloween. People are out trick or treating, and we have some wonderful historical treats for you tonight. The history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland, told through 21 buildings. The battle uh, of the daughter of Peter the Great and Catherine I to regain her throne. A graphic history of the Middle Ages. Violence in Dublin in the final months of the War of Independence. And we'll end the show by previewing a new film on women during that revolutionary decade. Last week, well, for the Bank Holiday weekend, we brought you our show on Sitting Bull. And then two weeks ago, we discussed the role of Strategic Air Command in the United States during the Cold War, heard about women fighters of the Jewish resistance, and explored the question of when America stopped being great. And if you want to listen back to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show asking, if only these stones could talk. In a new book, Peter Stanford journeys through England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland to churches, abbeys, chapels and cathedrals, grand and humble, ruined and thriving, ancient and modern, to chronicle how a religion that began in the Middle East came to define our past and shape our present. The book is called If These Stones Could Talk, The History of Christianity in Britain and Ireland Through 20 Buildings. It's published in hardback by and Stoughton. The author, as I say, Peter Stanford. And Peter, you're very welcome back to the show. Lovely to be here again. Thank you. Now, you had a very intimidating challenge here to look <laughs> at Christianity in Britain and Ireland uh, through buildings over 2,000 years. But I think you found a very innovative solution to that. Well, it's such a complicated story, isn't it? And we all know bits of it because we've been told bits of it, depending on which part of the British Isles we live in. So in in my bit, we're obsessed by the Reformation and Henry VIII and all his wives and all the things that happen afterwards. Um, You know, in Northern Ireland, Ireland, questions about kind of religion and and, and how those sectarian divides come. Uh, Wales, different things. Scottish Reformation, completely different from the English Reformation, although linked to it. And they all kind of jumble in our heads. And I'm, I'm a great walk around churches wherever I go. I um, I always try and take a bit of time just to wander into the local church and look at things and try and work out its history. And it's almost, um, <laughs> it's a bit like OCD, really. It's almost like trying to work them out in my head and think, where does that fit? Where, which That happened in that century. What else was happening in that century? So in a way, by, by chronicling the 20 centuries of Christianity in these islands um, by a church, it allowed me to, to bring a good order to it all. So it is a book that will not only tell you the history, our own history over 20 centuries and, and, and put everything in place, but also tell you about these fabulous churches. Some of them are, 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 are relatively well known. The one that I end up with um, for my 20th century church is Liverpool Catholic Cathedral, which anyone who's been to Liverpool or even past the skyline of Liverpool will know. And obviously I was born there, so um, it, it has a particular resonance to me. So some are well known. I think just for the English Reformation, I choose the Henry VII Chapel at the back of Westminster Abbey, which is all about the divine right of kings. 
and Elizabeth, Mary Tudor, Mary Queen of Scots, James the Sixth of Scotland, James the First of England. They're all buried in there. So obvious ones there. But I really love the off off the beaten track ones that I've discovered over the years. But tell me, my favourite one, so this isn't an Irish one, and I will come to an Irish one in a minute, but my favourite one is this, if you're ever if you ever get the ferry from Dublin over to Hollyhead and you're driving down through Wales, somewhere around Langoslin, look on your map and take a detour to a place called Pennant Melon... Well, it looks like Pennant Melland Gel, uh, but the Welsh call it Melangeth. And there is the most beautiful 12th century Norman church there. And it's a wonderful story. Um, it had a shrine. There was a, an Irish saint, Melangeth, Melangel, however you want to pronounce it, um, uh, was a, 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 a sort of solitary nun there in the seventh century. Her remains were, 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 her bones were there. There was a shrine in this 12th, 12th century church. The English Reformation comes along, told to take away all these shrines, far too Catholic, not Protestant enough. And, but what the people in the church did was they buried all the stones from the, um, this 12th century shrine in the walls of the church. They hid them. And in the 20th century, um, the custodians of the church, the vicar at the time, was called Paul Davis and his wife Evelyn. They dug out the walls and they reassembled this 12th century shrine. And architectural historians tell us this is the finest Romanesque shrine in the whole of Northern Europe. And I promise you, you have to drive about four miles up a winding lane into the Berwyn Mountains to find it. It literally takes your breath away. And it, I mean, it illustrates the title very well, If These Stones Could Talk. Well, these stones are now out of the wall, so they can talk. You built a chapter around a century and around a church. So was that a difficult challenge, finding one for each century? I mean, it was. I mean, particularly, uh, you know, our, our history doesn't go in neat hundred year packages in, in, in one sense. So often they would overlap. And I used the uh, example before of the English Reformation, the Scottish Reformation. They're very different. So how do you find one church that would sum them both up? And I slightly got round that by putting the English church at the very, very end of the previous century of the 15th century. Uh, which was the Henry VII Chapel at Westminster. And then for the 16th century, I chose St. Giles's Cathedral in Edinburgh, which has the uh, statue of uh, uh, John Knox, the, the, the Scottish Presbyterian um, reformer in there. Um, sometimes it was harder. I suppose the other difficulty I had, um, and, and I suppose people will probably be listening, thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. A church per century, what on earth is he going to use in the first or the second century? And that indeed was difficult. So... Um, what we do know is that the Romans con- conquered um, what they called Britannia, sort of south of Hadrian's Wall, and, and, and they claimed that they, they, they had control of Wales, but they didn't really, um, in AD 43. And we know that there were, were most likely to be um, uh, Christians amongst the Roman occupying forces, but they had an official religion in Rome, and it wasn't Christianity, so it was all underground. So my first, my first building... It's hardly a building at all, and it relies very heavily on legend. So it's at Glastonbury in Somerset, where there are various uh, chronicle accounts that there was a very early church built there by a mission leader called Aristobulus, um, who uh, is meant to have died in AD 99, and he built a simple church at Glastonbury, um, that, which was then uh, replaced in the 12th century by a, a, a sort of um, Mary Chapel, a Virgin Mary Chapel, and then, uh, and then later on became rubble. So I stand amid the rubble, but the thing there is, which I love in Glastonbury, is there's an even better legend that says Jesus came there, um, either in his youth 
or at, at some stage later with Joseph of Arimathea. And when Joseph of Arimathea got out of the boat that arrived at Glastonbury, he's meant to have put his staff into the ground, um, which was a wooden stick, and it sprouted as a tree. And there's this tree that is right there by the ruins of what might have been a first century church. Um, it's a thorn tree, obviously kind of legend, but the really, really intriguing thing is that they've done lots of tests on the tree recently. And what they've discovered is it's a, it's, um, it's a species of tree that only grows in the Middle East. There are no other examples of this particular sort of tree in, in Northern Europe and certainly in Britain. And the other really weird thing about it is it flowers around Christmas and around Easter. So who knows what it's about? So I've cheated slightly in the first century by making it a tree amongst some ruins. But everyone after that is, is a proper one, including my sixth century church, which is Clonmacnoise in, um, in, in Ireland. So I can tell the story of Irish monasticism, these extraordinary, um, uh, independent-minded uh, abbots and monks and founders like Kieran, who founded Clonmacnoise, and how that in a way gave rise the whole interchange of history almost between Ireland and England. So um, uh, Columba, Colum Sill, uh, came, it is said, to Clonmacnoise, um, and then later on went over to Iona and brought Christianity in through Scotland, through Iona, down to Lindisfarne uh, in, in that way. So in a way, it was Irish monasticism that certainly shaped that the, the northern part of England and Scottish Christianity, and of course the interchange between the Irish monks and the Welsh coast, as I've just demonstrated in that example of Pennant Melangel, um, or Melangest, to do my Welsh pronunciation properly, um, there was a huge interchange there. So all our stories are incredibly interwoven. And so picking between them and finding the right church, I hope I've got the balance right. I leave it to readers to send me letters of complaint oh, I got it wrong. I think you'll get letters from readers who have really enjoyed the book. It is <laughs> a wonderful look at both the it's a look at the history, the the politics, the social impact of these churches as well as what's going on in religion over 2000 years. The book is called If These Stones Could Talk: The History of Christianity in Britain and Ireland Through 20 Buildings, published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. The author Peter Stanford and Peter, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's it's lovely being with you and thank Thank you for thank you for listening to me. <laughs> we'll be back. Our pleasure. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Born into the house of Romanov to the all-powerful Peter the Great and Catherine the First, Princess Elizabeth was the envy of the Russian Empire. However, when her mother died, Russia was torn, masks fell, and friends became foes. And by her 20s, she was penniless and powerless, living under constant threat. And a new book tells her story. The book is called The Tsarina's Daughter. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author is Ellen Albston. And Ellen, you're very welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for welcoming me. The earlier book in the series, Tsarina, uh, was described as Game of Thrones or making Game of Thrones look like a nursery rhyme. And that definitely is continued here with the, the Tsarina's daughter. Can you tell us about Elizabeth and how things became so difficult for her then after the death of her mother? I know both books really lead my reader into my heroine's world, which is so strange and shocking and very, very sensuous on every level. And both Tsarina and the Tsarina's daughter deal with this unique century of female reign in Russia that was hitherto completely undiscovered in literature. And I just deem myself so lucky 
So both books are the first ever novels about these two empresses that were forgotten. And yes, while Tsarina charts actually the rise of Catherine I of Russia, who's not Catherine the Great, I have to add, from serf to empress, and also the transformation of Russia from backward nations to the beginning of the superpower we know today, the story of the Tsarina's daughter is really the inverse. It's fascinating. As you said, she was the world's loveliest princess and Peter the Great only surviving of his 15 children. And if you look at a portrait that Louis Caravac did of her, you really see, I mean, she looks like the young Marilyn Monroe, all dewy-eyed, rosy-cheeked, and she was supposed to marry the King of France, Louis XV. So what went wrong? Yes, both her parents died in quick succession. And suddenly, there was this immense vacuum of power in Russia. Peter the Great had started so many reforms. Many of them weren't implemented, hadn't finished. And everybody who was close to the throne thought, hang on a minute, I could have a stab of this. I could be sort of Russia's omnipotent ruler and actually the ruler of the world's largest and wealthiest Russia. So that was her problem. Did she have to make a decision whether she was going to uh, fight for the throne, that, that this was something that she would have to, to work at if she did want to rule? Absolutely. Her right to reign was ignored four times. So the Russian throne was orphaned three times in the span of five years. And then again, when it was actually her turn to rule, they called in somebody else to be Empress of Russia. I can't give too much away because it would be a spoiler. It's one of the most chilling comebacks in history that that person or that character in, in my book makes. So when Elizabeth finally becomes who she always was, emboldened by a huge, impossible love story and a very, very strong passion, when she decides to claim what is hers, the Russian the Russian Empire, it does come at a terrible price. And she has to take probably the hardest decision of her life, which haunted her forever and ever. And indeed, we won't give spoilers away. But how did you find researching it then uh, in terms of gathering material? And were there things that surprised you? You know what? Naivety protects. I think if I had known which world of Tolkien's dimensions I was to enter. I don't know if I would have dared to continue because I really did research for a year before I, I, I wrote the opening sentence of Serena at the time. And I really did everything. I discovered my heroine when I was 13 reading a book about Germans and Russians because these two people are almost, you know, joined by the hip in, in their history of having suffered terrible, terrible political tragedies, living under the worst systems, Chinese apart, um, but also have this innate understanding of beauty and tragedy, especially in their creation. And so I did everything. I read the big Russians, of course, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Gogol. Um, I watched dogma movies like The Ark about the life in the Winter Palace, Battleship Potemkin. I read Russian fairy tales, which are so important to actually understand the imaginary of a people. And also, of course, an, an, an unimaginable number of, of accounts, of contemporary accounts. For instance, there's a travel diary of a German merchant who visits the father of Peter the Great. And the Russia he describes is of unimaginable darkness. I mean, our, our Middle Ages are times of luminaries compared to that.
And in terms of writing it as an historical novel, if it was a non-fiction book, you would have structured it in a particular way. Were there different challenges writing it as a novel because you had, of course, your research, you had also the power of your imagination, but you had also the structure of what you knew had happened. And did that provide a scaffolding for the work? It absolutely did. And of course, that's always a big challenge for every every historical novelist, you know, how to make that leap from fact to fiction. I find it very, very important that the framework is right. So almost compared to ice dance and the Olympic Games, you've got the duty part. So that is the research, you know, how they how they dress and how they travel and how they house and, and what happened. You can't mess with those dates if you want to be a serious historical novelist. At the same time, I feel both my heroines of Serena and the Serena's daughter are modern women, you know, they, they survive and they completely choose their own path, even so it is very, very stony. So despite them, you know, having hoop skirts and dining by candlelight and traveling by sled instead of by car, they are modern women. And of course, the big difference between a biography and a novel is emotion. What makes us human? And the question, so what was this really like? And I attempt to... To, to answer that question, what were things actually really like if you are this young woman, 20 years old, who's suddenly surrounded by wolves and who has to fight for the Russian Empire, the throne, her right. And it's just a fantastic adventure. At the moment, I'm writing book three in the series, and I, I'm so in love with my heroine again. I call them my girls. Everybody laughs at me. Well, we look forward to seeing what you have uh, next in store for your girls. But if our listeners uh, want to learn more about a Russian princess who is very much a modern woman, the book is called The Tsarina's Daughter. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author is Ellen Albston. And Ellen, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for welcoming me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book busts the myth of the Dark Ages, shedding light on the medieval period's present day relevance in a unique illustrated style. The book is called The Middle Ages A Graphic History. It's published in paperback by Icon Books, illustrated by Neil Max Emanuel, and written by Eleanor Yanega. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Eleanor Yanega, to the show tonight. Eleanor, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. I really appreciate it. It's a beautiful book to read and beautiful illustrations by Neil. Can you tell me about your approach with the book? What were you trying to achieve? So with the book, what I wanted to do was get everything into it that I would want my first years when I teach in university to get out of an introductory medieval course. And my joke about it is uh, this is all the stuff that I hope they remember a year after they actually took it. So it's got a lot of big themes. It's really ready to introduce people who don't have any kind of background in medieval history at, at all, at all. But I also wanted everyone to realize that, you know, this is actually fun. It's not just something that is uh, really dry and academic. It's a really interesting time period and anyone can enjoy learning about it. And talk to me about uh, this whole idea of the Dark Ages. You show that really these ages (laughs) were nothing. They were nowhere near as dark as, as people like to pretend. 
Yeah, it's a really a frustrating one for historians because when the term Dark Ages got invented, uh, we meant a couple hundred years of history. It was supposed to be, you know, sort of about around the fall of Western Rome in 476 to maybe around about, you know, 700 or so. And it means a really specific thing. It means that we don't have a lot of sources from that time. Um, and that doesn't mean that no one was writing things down and it doesn't mean that books weren't being written. It's just, it's a really long time ago. <laughs> and uh, what I always say is, you know, when you move house, you throw out all your electricity bills, you know? So the only things that really survive are like really, really important documents. We just don't know much about it. And what's kind of happened over time is people think the Dark Ages means the medieval period, the whole, you know, thousand years or so about from about, you know, 476 to about, oh, I don't know, 1500. And it's not true. It's just not the case. Um, and it's a really interesting time when a lot of big scientific achievements happened. We learn all kinds of things. Uh, there's all sorts of really great ways that, you know, communities are thriving and working together. And that all just kind of gets ignored because modern people like to pretend that they're pretty fancy and that's not the way things are. Very often in the old style approaches to history, it would have focused on, you know, kings and leaders. But I think you were very strong in ensuring that uh, everyone was included, that we're getting a sense of what it was like for people and uh, for women, for people of different backgrounds, religious beliefs. And it's not just the rich and the, and the successful. Exactly. You know, one of the things that really frustrates me um, about when you we do talk about the Middle Ages, if we do, is, you know, you'll get a list of kings, you know, maybe a pope in there, there'll be a mention of the Crusades, and then everybody moves on, you know. Uh, but 80% of the year population in the Middle Ages are peasants. And so, you know, it's the people who are farming that are most people. And I think what's going on with their lives is what's really, really interesting, actually. And we did try to make um, a really big effort to include other more marginalized groups. So, you know, we talk about Jewish people. Uh, we talk about uh, people who have leprosy. We talk about, um, you know, gay, what we would call gay people. They didn't call them that in the Middle Ages. Um, and we do try to point out that uh, women actually existed, which is something that a lot of the times if you read traditional medieval history, Histories, um, women get kind of ignored. So it's it's nice to kind of take time to acknowledge what's going on with ordinary people and not just always the richest and most powerful. And in terms of uh, these other groupings then, how difficult were their lives and uh, how tough was it to be an outsider or someone who, who didn't uh, tick all of the boxes of what they wanted? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because obviously stuff was hard uh, for marginalized groups um, in the medieval period. So, for example, we know that Jewish people are really particularly um, under threat of, you know, pogroms or violence against their communities because people have really specific connotations about Jewish people. But at the same time, for example, Jewish people are considered absolutely necessary for business uh, because there is this idea in the medieval period that lending money at interest um, is a sin called usury. Uh, but Jewish people can lend money to Christian people. So they were considered absolutely necessary if you were going to have a lot of business. So you would have times, for example, when huge Jewish communities would be specifically invited into a particular uh, kingdom in order to kickstart business, for example. So one of the things I try to point out is that, you know, Jewish people are absolutely massively oppressed, but at the same time, they're really seen as, you know, some a group of people that you really do need to have around and they're necessary. So it's important to kind of keep the two things uh, in your head, you know? So on the one hand, they're quite oppressed. On the other hand, they're uh, quite welcome. And then also just to keep in mind, you know, one of the things I always say is as horrible as things were for Jewish people uh, in Europe in the medieval period, the worst thing that ever happened to Jewish people in, uh, you know, history in Europe happened in the 20th century. So, you know, we can't let ourselves completely off 
the hook for the way people are treated. And it's important to kind of learn the history of how you kind of get to situations like the Holocaust in the 20th century. And what about the role of the church? Because again, you're you're showing that perhaps it's not as 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 it's not as it it doesn't oppress in the way that again we might have that image of from movies and television programs and maybe our own our own impressions. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot of the the way that people think about the church has a lot to do with modern history and it has a lot to do with you know after the Reformation and you know the church takes on a much more uh, kind of defensive slash offensive position in you know comparison to Protestantism, for example. Um, but one of the things that is really important to kind of keep in mind, especially in the early medieval period, is the church is not even that important. You know, like uh, the Pope at particular times is getting beaten up in the street in Rome, you know, because that's how not important the, the church is. So, you know, when you say, oh, yeah, the church is this, um, a lot of people kind of think of it as this big overarching structure that really can interfere in people's lives. And that is something that kind of comes about, yeah, in the early modern period, but it takes them hundreds upon hundreds of years of kind of like writing books and trying to convince people that they're important and they should be the arbiter of religious things. And it takes a really long time for that to ever kick in. So, you know, obviously the church has done some really, you know, uh, drastically not great things um, in history. But in the medieval period, they're not actually as popular, well, popular, powerful as you would think. Um, they're incredibly important. Everybody, you know, most people are Christians and people are thinking about these things. But they're not actually like hiding under your bed trying to get you in trouble. And they just don't have actually the money or power to do that a lot of the time. And also then there's great humour in the book as well. I think that's something that we also should mention that this isn't just one of these serious uh, uh, very heavy texts that there's actually a lot that readers will will uh, get, a, get, some, get some amusement out of. I'm so glad you said that because uh, that's something that Neil and I worked really hard on um, because I think it is fun. You know, history is fun and medieval history is really fun. There's all kinds of things going on that are really, really interesting. And people back then were, you know, as funny as we are now. So you get all these really interesting situations that kind of come up. We really wanted to, you know, use the art to highlight that, um, you know, make jokes, point things out, because really it, it doesn't have to be dour and dry. You know, you can learn without having to be bored out of your mind. And so... You know, it's a great opportunity in a book like this, I think, to really highlight how fun history can be and actually is. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight, Eleanor. I think it's a book that our listeners will really enjoy. The Middle Ages, A Graphic History, illustrated by Neil Max Emanuel and uh, written by Eleanor Yanega, published in paperback by Icon Books. And Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us tonight. An absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A few months ago, we spoke to two authors about their book on the first months and indeed the first part of the struggle in Dublin during the War of Independence. And I'm delighted to welcome them back now to talk about their follow-up volume looking at the final months of the fighting in Dublin during the War of Independence, which looks at the conflict in uncompromising, unflinching and unprecedented detail. The book is called Someone Has to Die for This, Dublin, November 1920 to July 1921. The book is published in paperback by Mercier Press. And I'm delighted to welcome back Derek Molyneux and Darren Kelly to the show. You're both very welcome. 
Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be back and thanks for having us again. Derek, can I begin with you about Bloody Sunday? Because this is something that we know about from, you know, from, from stories, from popular culture, movies like Michael Collins. It's, it's very much part of the mythology of the War of Independence. What really happened on that day in terms of, in terms of the attack on British intelligence? Well, the stuff that you'd see in, in um, the likes of the Neil Jordan movie, that's far from the truth. And the best way to really look at Bloody Sunday is to think of a prize fighter who gets hit with a massive right hook. He hits the canvas but gets back up again and comes back out fighting. By the start of December 1920, um, newer and tougher and better trained British agents have arrived in Dublin from the Hounslow Spy School in West London. And they took the places of those killed on Bloody Sunday in the Dublin District Special Branch. Now, the first thing that they did was to clear any civilian staff from army intelligence. Anything related to them was now kept in-house. They also started to root out any IRA agents within Dublin Castle. You can see the effect of this as the war continues, as the infamous squad hits began to decrease in number, their last hit being at the end of March 1921. A gentleman named Captain Seth known also as a Frenchman, who was originally a target for Bloody Sunday. Now, he was absent from his lodgings and escaped the state that awaited him for for a number of months. At the same time, we also have Sir Basil Thompson's deep undercover operatives. There were about 60 in number who report directly to him, and he then feeds the information back to Dublin Castle. Now, Ormond Winter, uh, the James Bond-type character, if if you ever see a photograph of him, he was in charge of um, police intelligence. Now, he was also hard at work, and by the end of December 1920, had formed a group of, of police constables, officially known as the Identification Squad under Eugene Igo. Now, his job was to identify volunteers from the country who were in Dublin on volunteer work or on the run. They wouldn't become known as the Igo Gang. Now, also in December 1920, the District Special Branch of British Army Intelligence was transferred to Ormond Winter's control. The Special Branch was renamed the Branch of Winter's Combined Intelligence Service, which consisted of four branches, lettered A to D, with a raids branch which assisted B branch. Now, very quickly, IRA intelligence at the same time is not resting on its laurels. They are also adapting their intelligence and, and it's switching towards the auxiliaries, troop movements. This is being done at battalion and company levels, and this information will help sustain the numbers attacked by the active service unit. And once they are based, they will soon be up and running. Later on, after the Custom House attack and the amalgamation of the active service unit and the squad, IRA intelligence at, at general headquarters level is returned to the Dublin Brigade to, to perform information collection and gathering on targets like trucks, trains, as well as um, assassinations for the Dublin Guard to carry out. But uh, in a nutshell, it's generally perceived wrongly that British intelligence was wiped out um, on Bloody Sunday. And you can see from the answer that it was given that that was actually very, very far from the case. And this is uh, vividly detailed throughout the book. Darren, let's talk about the IRA active service units because you get a real sense of the violence that takes place and you get it from the, sense, the point of view of the participants as well. That uh, they're, they're, it's, it's an incredible, the, the way the fight is taken to uh, the various different British units. You've got to remember, like, uh, the squads were also an active service unit. So, but, so when you get the... The, the second active service unit, we start off with um, the, the very first attack that they do, which is on Bachelor's Walk. And we follow them all the way through, that's including Harold Court, Ormond Quay, Thomas Street, and the Custom House as well. Now, the active service unit uh, was, was in action at least five times a day. 
depends how much the Dublin citizens began to learn the signs of a pend and attack and would quickly hit the deck as soon as it began. But then you, then the active service take part in the custom house. And so in that, we go into the minute detail of the plan and the carrying out of the operation, the arrival of auxiliaries on the scene, the burning of the custom house, etc., etc. So after the custom house, then the active service unit carry on with their attack, but they're then amalgamated with the squad to form the Dublin Guard, which was an effective fighting unit involved in troop train attacks, the, the planned wipe it out of the auxiliaries on Grafton Street area more than once. And then also not to forget the brutal killings like that happened in the Mayfair Hotel. But these, these, the squad and the active service unit itself were like in action quite a lot. That it was like um, it was like a flying column in the country, but it was based in the city. Derek, you also see some of the fault lines developing in the political leadership and in the. Uh, amongst amongst the those fighting the campaign and for example most notably between Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera as things begin to unravel. Patrick, the divisions that developed between Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera are rooted long before the Anglo Irish Treaty negotiations and, and we explore untrodden ground in, in how this developed. Now, Collins is seen as effectively the revolution's poster boy and this is often set against de Valera's hooded claw like persona. But this book reveals some surprising evidence that strongly should suggest that De Valera had good cause to be wary of Collins. Now, given not to detract from the greatness of either man, both had huge egos without which they could never have achieved what they did. But it also becomes clear that during the War of Independence, particularly during its latter stages, Collins was taking steps and performing acts that appeared to have been undermining De Valera at pretty much every turn. As, as De Valera saw, for example, a channel through which to explore the means of getting both sides to the negotiating table and trying to unshackle himself from what, what he later referred to as the straitjacket of the Republic, Collins was actually tightening the straps on the straitjacket with a series of unilateral actions and proclamations demanding nothing short of the proclaimed Republic as a settlement, but without referring to his Dáil or Cabinet colleagues in advance of making such statements. Now, we also explore, and we appear to be the first to do so, how an interview between Collins and American journalist named Carl Ackerman, who, by the way, was also reporting to the British intelligence services, well, this might well have served to add to the divisions in Irish-America that so injured Ireland's cause. But the upshot of all this, it leads one to the conclusion that when it came down to the actual treaty negotiations that took place 100 years ago, and the controversial decision by De Valera to insist that Collins went as a negotiator. But De Valera may well have insisted that Collins went because he suspected that he, had he himself returned with anything less than the Republic, well, Collins might well have led a charge against him, particularly given his recent form. And finally, Darren, as we approach then the centenary of the Civil War, perhaps you get a sense from the the fighting that's taking place here into kind of maybe a, a prophecy of what's still to come because in terms of the brutality, in terms of the violence, uh, you're getting maybe a, uh, an early indication of, of, of how the future conflict is also going to go. Uh, yeah, you're correct there. Uh, what becomes evident from reading both their books on the War of Independence is that the successful prosecution of the war against the British frequently necessary necessitated unmitigated ruthlessness and brutality similar to that met out by the British forces. 
Tom Barry, a uh, legendary IRA commander, wrote famously in his book that the IRA were forced to go down to the mire in order to successfully meet the British on their own terms. Well, there are countless examples of what that mire looked like in our war. Now, the Civil War is regularly characterised in terms of its brutality. But it might be argued that this was how both sides in the Civil War had learned how to fight. There's another dynamic. To detail, to detail the formation of the Dublin Guard in the wake of the Custom House attack in May 21, this was the unit that formed when the squad marched with the active service. These two particular attachments had fought in the war in Dublin and at its most up-close and personal level, constantly facing the prospect of death and torture, and learning to dispatch enemies without hesitation or mercy. It's notable also that the Dublin Guard and other members of the IRA who subsequently took the fight for the anti-police IRA were implicated in some of the most notorious atrocities. But this was how they learned to fight. But this theme is also illustrated in our coverage of the uncompromising un- viciousness with which the war was fought throughout the country, and uncompromising is precisely how the civil war was fought. There's also an observation that, particularly in terms of the free state leadership, that what had been required in terms of sheer effort and expense to get the British to the table was not something that they would likely count on having at their disposal at the time in the future. And that, therefore, it became necessary to destroy without mercy any end even if that enemy is your former comrade. That might threaten what had been secured against such impossible odds during the War of Independence. Destroying without mercy was, in many ways, the mythology used in the Civil War, perhaps most notably by the National Army and later the Free State Forces. So in summary, we shine an ominous light onto, onto what succeeded the War of Independence by, by portraying in unflinching detail type of tactics used to which one learned would not soon be unlearned. Very good. Well, congratulations on the new book. It's called Someone Has to Die for This, Dublin, November 1920 to July 1921. It's published in paperback by Mercier Press. The authors, Derek Molyneux and Darren Kelly. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History for our special Halloween edition of the show. And to end the show tonight, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sinead McCool, who's a wonderful historian and she's the creator of the Manaw100.ie project, which is part of the government's commemorations unit. Uh, Sinead, you're very welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. Lovely to be here. Can you tell us about Manaw100.ie, this wonderful initiative, part of the Decade of Centenaries commemorative programme? Talk to me about this work and also this very exciting uh, documentary curated film uh, Toward America. Well, um, Manaw100.ie was um, established as an online resource. So it's uh, looking at the the commemoration period, uh, focusing on the role of women. And so what, what we're doing is we're looking at it in two different ways. One is um, uh, you know, a hundred year timeline. So where, what came next, as it were, and then a, a concentration on the, 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 the period that we're in now. So it's, it's been 21 and, and 22, 23 is the, is the sort of the, the stage that we're looking at. And what the idea is, is that we'll take events that are happening and then we'll, we'll do them in different ways. So it's a, a multimedia, um, you know, type of, of interaction. So you might come to Manol 100 because you heard a podcast. So we've had podcasts on the general election of May um, 1921. And the way we did that was we looked at it as 
as how election literature was created. And then we look at the, the women, both north and south, that were um, in that election and, and those that were elected. And then we've, we've looked at more recently at the Markovich Bursary Award winners, but against the backdrop of Markovich as an artist. And, you know, not just an artist as in a visual artist, but also as a poet, as a, as a, a lyricist. And, you know, looking at her um, in terms of her, of, of acting. So we try to look at her in a slightly different way. But each time using it in some terms of visual and and, and also um, audio, we have uh, recordings of, of Emma Kelly reading for us and Dawn Bradfield. And the reason that they were selected to look at the curfew murders was because Dawn Bradfield is from the area in which um, the um, Kate O'Callaghan was from in Cork. And then um, Emma Kelly is from the area in Limerick where Mary uh, um, Clancy is. So we're trying to, where, we, where we're working with material, we're trying to make it feel authentic. So, you know, for those people who knew that they were from those parts of the country, there's a lovely tonality in the way that they tell those stories and it's first-hand accounts. Not as, not, not as, but where possible, as you know, during the decade of commemorations, we've tried to, um, you know, look at the authentic source and to try and find new source material and engage, um, you know, relatives in, in, in providing material. And Sinead, why do you think these women's voices haven't been heard for so long and it's only really, I suppose, in this decade of centenaries that we're finally getting the full story of what everyone was involved in? You know what, I think that is the beauty of the Decade of Centenaries programme um, because there's been such a funding across the board of through local authorities, like local, you know, historians in residence and, you know, the, the vast, you know, amount of material that's been digitised both through the, the national cultural institutions and through the, um, you know, like through obviously through the military archives. And so what, what we're finding is, is, you know, the huge numbers of women. So the, the last tranche of material that came out, you know, the 10th issue was 895, you know, new women, you know, those who got the, you know, the pensions and those who didn't. I mean, that's such a huge number. And so, you know, so many of those people are new. You know, we haven't heard about them. Of course, their families or maybe the local, you know, local people know them or local histories know them, but not, not on, the, on the national scale. So that, that's been hugely interesting. And then it's also looking at the documentation that's been scanned and, you know, you know, trying to find the, you know, the women in, in the, what I've always said is like so many of them have been, you know, hiding in plain sight. So, you know, it's just that, that the, you know, the idea that you're, you're now discovering that so many people had an involvement. So, you know, in terms of, you know, because it was a secret war, because it was an underground government, the, the idea of all of these, these stories you know, of people and then families coming up with documentation and, you know, and, and, and just to prove the, their involvement. So we have oral history now and like particularly years ago when I was in university, you know, the whole idea was, you know, oral history was a flawed source. And now this, you know, this, this programs where oral history is, you know, and people are feeling confident to come forward and tell their stories. But then they're also bringing documentation and that's coming into the public domain. So it's been a really rich renaissance for, for women's history because a lot of the women's story up until now didn't have a place to go. Do you know what I mean? The, the people you know, knew their aunts were involved, knew their mothers were involved, but they, they weren't hearing it reflected back. And they didn't really, particularly when you, when you, if you think back maybe you know, two or three decades ago, where it was very much the leaders of organisations. So you know, you'd have obviously the Mark Riches and the, and the Maud Gons. But the idea that somebody was a sort of a minor player, people didn't really feel confident that that was part of history. And what people now understand is that that whole wealth of the story of the rank and file, that they're really able to say, you know what, my aunt did this. And then they'll say, I heard this particular story when I was a child. And, and then, they, then they, they're finding either themselves 
that the military archives pension record is, is proving that, or they're able to add the, which I'm finding particularly, and we've used this really, really effectively in, in the Manoa 100 site, is with, with the help of local people. So we had Paul Hughes working with us with the with um um West Mees and so he was he was finding, you know, material on on Alice Janelle from the local place, you know, archives that were locally held. And then you were able to match it with material that was in Argentina because they spent time in Argentina. So it becomes, you know, local, national and international all in one go. Well, Sinead, absolutely brilliant work and well done on the Toward America project and also the wider uh, Manoa100.ie work and uh, uh, definitely a lot more for us to explore in the years ahead as well because it's something that we're just adding to all the time, I think. No, certainly. And one of the things that we're really, you know, keen on as well is that, you know, obviously the, you know, the decade of centenaries will end, but the, the idea of this period is still one of the richest and best documented you know revolutionary periods that and that there is so what what is what's wonderful about it is that students will find new new areas of research and one of the things with toward america was was to go through the original source material you know look at the lists of women who were members of the um the committee for conditions in ireland first off and then the 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 conditions for relief in ireland and the, the first committee you know, took prominent women, most of them who had fought for, um, you know, for the vote, they basically came forward and lent their names. It's, they're not Irish Americans. They're really prominent American women. And there's a huge amount of research that needs to be undertaken from the American side, like a lovely marriage between, let's say, Irish archives and American archives in order to be able to really tease out the story of, of Toward America. So Toward America is a way of sort of teasing that story and saying this is an overview, but there's definitely work to be done behind that. But what was incredible about it is is that it's a visual history, and there's so much material within those reports showing the you know the the towns that were you know were, were burnt down, the publicity photographs that were taken of Maud Gone and Charlotte Deathbug traveling through the country, maps that were used to, to illustrate that. Then you've got the material from the Library of Congress, which is this really really rich selection of images of women protesting in Washington D.C. So what it is, it's a visual extravaganza. You have the story of it, and then it leads to how did the White Cross come about and how that money was distributed. But what I think is really interesting, Patrick, is is that we've known about this, you know, the White Cross, you know, for all the years. But like, no, I don't know of family members who were, you know, supported by the White Cross. And so that's the story again, that's the potential for students and new research. So it isn't a story that's finishing with a full stop at the end of of the of the centenary period. It's basically opening up the vista for new research and new exploration that will bring people not only to archives in Ireland, but also hopefully uh, abroad and, and back again. OK, well, my thanks to Dr. Sinead McCool for joining us tonight. The website is manaw100.ie. Some absolutely brilliant material there. And we are also going to play a small clip from the documentary. The Nation newspaper appealed for a committee of 100 fair-minded citizens to place the Irish case before the tribunal of the civilised world. 150 eminent men and women responded from 35 states including the owner of the newspaper, Helen Frances Garrison Villard, a member of the National Convention of Women Advocating Equal Suffrage and a founder of the Women's Peace Society. Jane Adams, social worker, reformer, sociologist and author, president of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and a founder of the American Civil Liberties Union. 
several were leading members of the National Women's Party. 52-year-old suffrage campaigner Elizabeth Sheldon Rogers, chair of the NWP's Advisory Council and legislative chairwoman for her native New York. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Calhoun, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Over the next few weeks, we've got some great shows coming up, including a trip to Belfast in two weeks' time to commemorate the centenary of the foundation of Northern Ireland. We'll also be bringing you shows on Scipio and even one on Frederick the Great. So join us next week and in the weeks ahead on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.